Well, good morning. Hope everyone's doing well. Uh, before we get into the sermon, I feel led to say something about the events that took place in Charlottesville, Virginia, this last weekend. Um, if you've been following the news at all, if you've been on social media, it was impossible to miss. But just in case you did, at the University of Virginia, a uh, large group of people identifying as white nationalists, white supremacists, uh, gathered to protest the removal of a Confederate monument. Um, and the protest turned into uh, racial taunting, which led to counter-protesters. And eventually, the hostility reached a point where the mayor declared a state of emergency. And yesterday, uh, one, perso one person, presumably supporting the white nationalists, uh, drove a car into a group of counter-protesters, killing one woman and uh, injuring at least 19 others. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful that the number of casualties were as low as they were. Uh, either way, this is, this is a horrible, horrible event. And I think it should concern us deeply that it took place at all. Because the people who started this um, were people who were openly and unapologetically advocating for white supremacy. Right? These are people who some of them were, had no problem displaying uh, flags with swastikas on them, um, neo-Nazis, KKK sympathizers, or members. Um, and I just think it is so important this morning uh, for us to be in prayer for our country. And um, it's just so critical for the church to openly reject racism in all of its forms. Uh, is this something that God cares about very much? It's not a problem that is just in our country's past. It's a problem that exists now, and an event like this brings that fact to the surface. If you were here back in January, you might remember that around Martin Luther King Day, I did a sermon on the gospel and race. And if you missed that, or you just you know, want to be reminded of what was said, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's, it's on the podcast. Uh, it's also still on the website. So it's, that's from January. And uh, it's, it's more timely now, I think, even than it was then. So I'd encourage you to, to listen to it again. Um, but uh, I think we need to re just recognize that racism is alive in our country, um, that uh, people who subscribe to racist ideologies, for whatever reason, do seem to feel particularly emboldened at this point in history. And uh, we as the church need to be a force for reconciliation and for advocating for the equality and humanity of all people, uh, regardless of your race. So let's take a quick moment to bow our heads and pray together before we get into this morning's sermon. Lord Jesus, uh, we come before you this morning not knowing exactly what to pray, uh, but knowing that things that took place this weekend uh, surfaced hatred in our country, and uh, they surfaced uh, ideologies that I think we can all together stand and openly renounce as evil. And uh, Lord, 
we as the church want to be a community that uh, dispels the divisions that usually divide people. Um, we want to be a community that uh, represents um, the wide diversity that you have created and that um, loves and supports people uh, regardless of their ethnicity. Um, Lord, we just, we pray for healing. Uh, we pray for those who have subscribed to these racist ideologies. We pray for repentance. Uh, we pray for an ability to truly love. Uh, we pray for an ability to see um, themselves in those who are different from them and an ability to have compassion. Um, Lord, we pray that the church would be a force for justice. Uh, we pray that the church would be able to stand up and condemn what is evil with one voice. Um, and we pray for peace, Lord. We pray for peace in our country and in the world. And although it sometimes feels naive to pray for peace, Lord, we recognize that through you all things are possible and that we look forward to uh, your kingdom in the future where all will be made right. And uh, it, is, it is in light of that hope that we work now for justice. Um, so, God, I ask that you'd give us strength. I, I ask, Lord, that you would comfort any who were injured um, or hurt by what took place this weekend. And, Lord, we ask that uh, this would not become a common occurrence, uh, that this event would in the long run serve to uh, help us to recognize the problem and address it, rather than uh, stoke the fires of, of hate. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well... If you were here last week, you know that we started a new series on sharing our faith. And uh, that is because uh, we had our baptism ceremony recently, and we were uh, quoting the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, Jesus talks about baptism, but he also talks about making disciples. He commands us to go into all nations and make disciples. In other words, go into all the world, go into different cultures, go into different languages, go into places where people look different from you and eat foods that you think are weird, and help them to see me, a Middle Eastern Jew, as their teacher and their model for life and their Lord. And so this series that we're in right now is based on a foundational truth that part of what it means to follow Jesus is to encourage other people to follow Jesus. Part of what it means to follow Jesus is to encourage other people to follow Jesus. And so the question that we're asking ourselves during this series is, how do we do that? What is the right way to do that? Now, last week I made a point that I would like to remind us of, which is that Jesus said, make disciples, but he didn't say, here is the exact formula for how you go about making disciples, right? He didn't say, Read them the four spiritual laws in order to make disciples, or take them through the Romans road to make disciples, or knock on their door and say, excuse me, sir, do you have a moment to talk about Jesus Christ? Right? He, he didn't say anything like that. And now, on the other hand, he didn't specifically say, don't do those things, um, but he just said, make disciples. And the point I made last week, which 
I'd like to reemphasize is I think Jesus was intentionally vague here because he wants us to get creative about how we as the church engage in this process of making disciples. And he also knows that he was telling his disciples to go into all nations, right? And when you go into all nations, you encounter different cultures, and in different cultures, certain ways of making disciples are going to be more effective than others. So I think Jesus is intentionally vague here because he wants us to get creative, and he wants us to be sensitive to the fact that we are trying to bring a message to different places where people think differently and have different cultures. So there is not an exact formula when it comes to making disciples, but there are definitely certain guidelines and principles that we should be following. And last week, we looked at some guidelines and principles based on Paul's sermon to the Areopagus in Acts 17. This week, like Keith said, uh, we're going to be looking at a different passage for some guidelines and principles. It's a passage that I would say is more foundational than Acts 17. It's one of my favorite passages. It's, it's, a, it's a passage that if you've been here very long, you've heard me talk about. It's a passage that if you've been to at least three weddings, you've heard at least read at one of them. Uh, and that passage is, of course, 1 Corinthians 13. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there to 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1. Now, when these words were originally written, they weren't part of a lecture on how to share our faith. Uh, the Apostle Paul was actually addressing the problem of the abuse of spiritual gifts in the church, and this was written to correct that abuse. Uh, but that said, these words definitely have implications for how we go about sharing our faith. In fact, they have implications for how we go about doing anything. Uh, but I encourage you to keep, keep evangelism in mind as I read these verses. So, starting in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Okay. What the Apostle Paul is saying here, and what God is saying through him, is something that is so extraordinarily important. So, so, so important. What Paul is saying is that if we don't have love for others, we have nothing. Zero. Nada. Zilch. Nothing. And Paul brings that point home by listing a bunch of things that really seem like something, but without love, they're nothing. So we're going to walk through those fairly quickly. The first thing he lists, speaking in tongues. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, 
I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, when Paul wrote these words, uh, many people in the Corinthian church were experiencing this Holy Spirit-given gift of being able to speak in languages that they had not learned in the traditional way. Uh, some of these languages were human languages that could be identified by other human beings, and some of them were angelic languages, uh, languages that the ordinary human being would have never heard. And through a miracle of the Holy Spirit, they were given the capacity to speak in these languages. Now, I don't know uh, how much exposure you have had personally to the phenomenon of speaking in tongues. Some churches talk about speaking in tongues a lot. Uh, I grew up in a church where I don't remember ever hearing about speaking in tongues uh, from the pastor. Um, if I remember correctly, the first time I heard about speaking in tongues was just by reading my Bible. I think I was a young teenager. And when I came across it, I was like, what is this? And I, I was so, so fascinated by it. And I, I think I, I brought it up to someone. I said, you mean to tell me there are people who say that they speak in languages that they've never learned before? And, and, and they, were, they were like, actually, yeah, I do that. <laughs> and uh, I just remember being stunned. I was like, why didn't anybody tell me this? You know, how could this actually be true? And uh, I was just totally fascinated. I just, I just found it so interesting. And that is an incredible thing, to be able to speak in a language that you've never heard. Now, if you are curious about uh, my opinion on this phenomenon today, I believe that speaking in tongues is very much a genuine gift of the Holy Spirit. I believe that people still experience this gift today. And I I'm quite confident that people in our own church have experienced this gift. Um, so I am, I am not uh, anti-speaking in tongues uh, at all. However, I want to add a few qualifiers. Uh, I do not believe that everyone who claims to speak in tongues is genuinely having that experience. Uh, I think that sometimes people just kind of speak in ecstatic gibberish. Uh, they, may, they might not knowingly be faking speaking in tongues, but I think that does happen sometimes. Um, and I also do not, do not believe that every Christian is granted the ability to speak in tongues. Um, some people will say, well, if you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who enables you to speak in tongues, so if you possess the Holy Spirit, you should be able to speak in tongues. But that argument has never made any sense at all to me because the Holy Spirit also gives gifts of teaching, administration, and prophecy, but we wouldn't put just anybody you know, up to preach saying, oh, well, you have the Holy Spirit, so you definitely have the gift of teaching, right? But for some reason, with tongues, it becomes this thing where it's like, oh, well, if you have the Holy Spirit, definitely the Holy Spirit is going to give you that gift. But I just, I just don't see that. And in fact, I think the Apostle Paul is actually very clear that not everybody has the gift of tongues, because in this same book of the Bible, Corinthians, just before this, in chapter 12, he says, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? And clearly, these are rhetorical questions where the implied answer is no, because Paul has just been talking about how the church is like a body, and different parts of the body have different functions, right? So, no, all are not teachers. No, all do not uh, prophesy. No, all do not speak in tongues. And I bring this up, even though it's a little off topic, because 
there are some churches where people claim uh, that, you know, if you're not speaking in tongues, you haven't been filled with the Holy Spirit. And they even sometimes go so far as to say, if you are not speaking in tongues and have not been filled with the Spirit, then you are not even a Christian. You might not even be saved. And uh, I just think that is such, such toxic teaching. Uh, because, like I said, Paul is clear, not all speak in tongues. And when you tell a church body that they need to speak in tongues in order to be saved, you end up in a situation where you get a lot of people who feel like they need to fake it uh, in order to feel eternally secure. And so you have people coming up to the altar and having their hands laid on them, and they, through the peer pressure and the intensity of the moment, go ushababa, ushababa, or whatever, and, you know, and, and they might not even realize that this is not actually from the Holy Spirit, but they just feel like this intense pressure that they have to do this uh, because of the, the peer pressure and fear. And that just really, really grieves me because not only is it adding an unnecessary condition to the gospel and to our, our idea of what spiritual maturity means, but it's also damaging the true gift of speaking in tongues, which is a really beautiful thing. Um, because when people are faking it all the time, and then people realize that that's what's going on, they become very cynical about the whole thing. And I just think that's a, that's a tragedy. So, anyway, that's, a, that's tangential. Felt the need to say something about it. But now we're going to shift back to the main point. So, what I really want us to notice is how important what Paul is saying here, that even if you have this incredible ability, this miraculous ability to speak in a language that you have never heard, that is just noise if you have not love. Paul says you're like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now imagine if, as I was talking right now, Misha was back there on the drums and he just kept slamming the crash cymbal over and over again. How annoying that would be, right? Well, when you speak in tongues and you have not love, that is what you are like, Paul is saying. Okay. Now, in the next sentence, Paul gives us a few more things that are nothing if we do not have love for others. If I, can, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now, what especially stands out to me there is if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge but have not love, I am nothing. And that especially stands out to me because I'm just a knowledge person. Like, I, I don't know if you've ever taken the Strength Finders test, but one of mine is input. I just love to gather information. I'm always fascinated by information. I always like to read stuff. You know, the internet is both a blessing and a curse because I can waste so much time on it just taking in information. But what Paul is saying here is that we could have exhaustive knowledge of the Bible, we could know it cover to cover. We could have a perfect interpretation of every single verse. Uh, and we could couple that with exhaustive knowledge of all the facts in the universe. You could, know, you could have read every book in every library and have memorized all of it. But if you don't have love, all of that is worthless. Wow. <laughs> you know, sometimes we can slide into thinking that the Christian faith is all about knowing things. That it's all about believing the right stuff. And beliefs are important, but even if we know everything there is to know, and if, even if we're on factually the right side 
of every argument, um, it just doesn't benefit us if we don't have love. Same thing with if we have incredible faith, if we have the kind of trust that is just, is, is so developed that we, we are able to make mountains move. If we don't have love, that's worthless. Now the next things that Paul lists are especially interesting to me. I, I think this is really cool, what Paul is saying about love. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I am nothing. Now, the, the weird thing about this is so far, it's easy to track with Paul's logic, right? If I have miraculous gifts, but have not love, I am nothing. If I have all knowledge, but have not love, I'm nothing. But here, it's like he's saying, if I do incredible sacrificial acts, which are the embodiment of love, but have not love, I am nothing. It's like, wait a second, how is, how is that even possible? How can you give up all your possessions, but have not love? And more than that, how can you make the supreme sacrifice of giving, offering up your body to flames, giving up your very life, and have not love? Right? It seems like he's saying, if you have love, but have not love, you have nothing. What? Especially because scripture tells us that the greatest, most supreme act of love that ever took place was Jesus offering his body on the cross. Right? Jesus giving up his very life. So how do we make sense of this? Well, on first glance, it might seem like there's no way to give up your possessions and not have love, and no way to give up your life and not have love. But I think if we think about it a little more, we can see that actually it is possible. Uh, some people give generously, say, to the poor, because they really are motivated by love for the poor. In fact, I think most people who give generously to the poor are motivated by love for the poor. But there are probably a few people out there who do it primarily because they are trying to earn God's approval or to convince themselves that they're actually a good Christian, you know? Or just to feel holy or to feel like they're impressive to other Christian believers. You know, other Christian believers will look at them and go, wow, look at how they, they live like they're in poverty because they just give everything. Um, there is such a thing as spiritual pride, and sometimes people don't really give generously out of love, but out of spiritual pride. I'm reminded of uh, an episode of the TV show The Office where there's an office Christmas party and everybody has a secret Santa and everyone is supposed to bring a gift. And there's supposed to be a $20 limit on how much people spend on the gifts. But Michael Scott, the boss, if you know what he's like, you know what he's like, uh, he goes out and he buys a $400 iPod. This is, this is from like 10 years ago when iPods were the hot item. So he goes just so far beyond how much anybody is supposed to spend. And on the surface, that might seem like a very generous act, right? But he's actually very selfishly motivated because as soon as that iPod is opened at the Christmas party, he makes it a point to be like, oh yeah, I bought that, I got that, I'm the one. And not only that, but he's deliberately left the price tag on the iPod so that everyone knows exactly how much it costs. So on the surface, looks like a generous act, but it's all really motivated by the desire to exalt himself. But what about that surrendering my body to the flames line? What do we do with that? 
Surely that can only be done with love. Well, to that I would say, you know, think about the terrorists who drove planes into the World Trade Center now almost 16 years ago. Did they surrender their bodies to the flames? I would say so. But did they do it for love? Love for others? I don't think so. You know, they, they might have done it out of vengeance. Uh, they might have done it out of a desire for some sort of eternal reward that had been promised to them. But did they do it for love for others? No. So it is possible even to make the ultimate sacrifice and to do it not motivated by love. And without love, even if we make the ultimate sacrifice, it is worth nothing. So, to sum up, if we don't have love for others, our miraculous abilities don't benefit us, our knowledge doesn't benefit, benefit us, our giving doesn't benefit us, and even our martyrdom, if we, if we actually are martyred, doesn't benefit us. Now, don't misunderstand, you know, the point of what is Paul is saying here is not that these things don't matter. It's not that spiritual gifts don't matter, miraculous abilities, they're great, you know, it's not that giving doesn't matter or that martyrdom doesn't matter. All those things can be very powerful channels for building the kingdom of God. The point, though, is that if you do them and you do not have love in your heart, it does not benefit you. I suppose there's a chance that it will benefit other people, but it will not benefit you. And even if it sometimes benefits other people, there will also be times where it does not benefit other people. I mean, a great example of that is the knowledge one, right? You know, knowledge is, can be good, but it's value neutral in itself. It's what you do with it. You know, knowledge is what gives us as humanity the capacity to build nuclear bombs. But knowledge doesn't tell us whether to use them or not. It's values that tell us whether to use them or not. And God wants the supreme value which guides what we do with our knowledge to be the value of love. So you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you do not have the value of love, then you have nothing. So if love is so important, if it is so critical, we better figure out what it is, right? What is love? Well, I think we know what love is. I think it's actually pretty simple. It can be hard to put it into words, but deep down, we know. We know. And the way that I would put it is, love is the will to bless another person. It's the will to bless another person. Uh, love is a deep desire to see someone else experience true joy and wholeness. Uh, that is what love is. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I love C.S. Lewis. I totally agree with him on this. He says, Love is a steady wish for the person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. Again, in other words, the will to bless another person. Now you might say, well, Ryan, I think you're making love too much about feelings, too much about personal desire, what we want. Love is really just about action. It's about what we do. And I think if you're thinking that, you're partly, partly right. Real love is about action. 
Um, if we have real love for the homeless guy that we're seeing right outside our window every day, we're, we're not just going to go, oh, I just so wish that he was warm. I wish he wasn't so cold out there in the snow. You know, Real love is going to motivate us to grab an extra jacket and go and, and give it to him so he's not cold anymore. But I think it's wrong to say that feelings are not a part of real love. Otherwise, why would it be possible to give away all our possessions to the poor and still not have real love? Right? Part of love is the attitude of our heart. So feelings do matter. Our attitude towards other people is part of what it means to have real love. Okay, so what does all this mean for sharing our faith? What can we conclude from 1 Corinthians 13 about sharing our faith? I have three quick points. If you're taking notes, this is the second half of the page. First point, our motivation for sharing our faith should be to bless others. Our motivation for sharing our faith should be to bless others. Now, that might seem like a point that's so obvious that it doesn't really even need to be made. But I think it's important to acknowledge because whether we recognize it or not, it is so easy to slide into doing uh, evangelism, sharing our faith, not to bless others, but for different reasons entirely. Uh, and here's a few, this is no means an exhaustive list, but here's a few bad motivations that can lead us to share our faith. A desire to convince ourselves that we are good Christians. A desire to impress the rest of the Christian community. It can feel fun to have good stories, you know. Uh, a desire to re reassure our own insecurities. Maybe you're going through a period where you're struggling with doubt yourself in regard to your faith, and so you feel like, well, if I can just convince other people, then I can, that can help me to convince myself. It's not really a very good, good uh, motivation. Uh, a desire to win an argument. It's fun to feel like you've, you've won. And a desire to boost our own pride, which of course is closely related to that. So all those motivations have something in common, which is that they are about self-concern, not about concern for others. They're primarily about blessing the self, not about blessing someone else. And notice, these motivations all spring from fear and pride. Fear and pride, not from love. And so if we find that we're being motivated primarily by these things when we're sharing our faith, uh, I think what we need to do is we just, net, we, first thing we need to do is recognize it, and then we need to get real before God. We need to go before him and invite him to change our hearts. We need to invite him and say, you know, God, help me to be the kind of person that possesses the quality of love. Help me to be the kind of person who truly desires to bless others because I recognize that without love, I am nothing. I have nothing. So the second thing that I think we can learn about sharing our faith from 1 Corinthians 13 is we should try to share our faith in a way that lets people know that we're trying to bless them. You know, if love really is our motivation, then people should sense that when we're interacting with them. Now, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that people are always going to be happy to hear what we have to say. Okay? The gospel has elements to it that are inherently offensive. 
And the gospel says things like, you are a sinner. Uh, you, you deserve the judgment of God. You need God, right? You need to admit your, de your dependence. You need to admit that you need the grace of God. All these are not ideas that people naturally want to embrace and receive, okay? And we can't just throw them out <laughs> because people might not like them, right? But we can still deliver them in a way so that people sense that we love them, that we care about them. People will be much more likely to tolerate any offensive ideas that we have to share if they believe that we genuinely care about them, that we love them. They might still disagree with us, but they're going to be so much more willing to listen and to continue the relationship if they sense that we really do care about them. So the question that I would encourage us to ask ourselves whenever we're sharing our faith is, am I doing this in a way that communicates, I want to bless you? Is that evident in my approach? You know, this is something that I have had to remind myself of so many times during my history of trying to share my faith. Uh, because a lot of the people who I have tried to share my faith with have been atheists, so people who like flat out reject existence of God, or people who identify as agnostic, who say, well, you just can't really know whether God exists. And that's the stance they've taken. And most of these people were you know, smart college-educated kids or graduate students. Um, and so when you talk with people like that, the dialogue is, is often pretty intense. They raise a lot of challenging questions. Um, and I like to debate to a certain extent. I, I enjoy that. In the past, I enjoyed that. And if I wasn't careful, those conversations could turn into battles you know, where it felt like we were opponents. Um, and as soon as when you're trying to share a faith, your faith, it becomes about trying to win an argument, people can tell. People know that that's what you're trying to do. And as soon as that happens, they don't see you as trying to bless them. They see you as trying to conquer them, to win. And the great irony is that once they've seen you that way, you've already lost. It's over. And I'm not saying there's no value in debate. There is, but we have to debate in a way that makes it clear that we want them to be blessed. So, finally, uh, a third thing I think we need to learn from 1 Corinthians 13 is love is the most powerful tool we have for drawing people to Jesus. Love is the most powerful tool. You know, I've talked to a lot of people who, when the subject of sharing their faith comes up, the first thing they say is, oh, I just wish I knew more. You know, I wish I'd been to seminary like you, because then I could answer people's questions. Well, yes, I have been to seminary, and there are still questions that I can't answer. <laughs> um, and that concern is rooted in a false belief, and that belief is that knowledge is what is going to draw people to the kingdom of God. But as Paul says here, the most important thing is love. You know, it's not, it's not going to be clever arguments that really draw people to Christ. If I have all knowledge and can fathom all mysteries but have not love, I am nothing. 
And it is good to have knowledge. It is good to be able to defend your faith. I'm not trying to downplay the value of that, but you don't have to be an expert in order to share your faith. You know, the one prerequisite that you have to have is love. You have to have a desire to bless other people, and you have to have a rudimentary understanding of the gospel. Really, that's it. If you have those things, you do have what you need to start sharing because you have the most powerful tool. You have the love. Back when I was in campus ministry, uh, I met a student named Jim. And Jim was not a Christian when I met him. He had been dating a girl since high school who had gotten involved with our group. And uh, her faith had really started to grow in college. And she was trying to get Jim to uh, come to the Christian fellowship. And Jim started to come, and he would come occasionally. You know, he'd be there every couple weeks, and he'd usually stay after and talk to the campus director because he always had a long list of questions. He's a very sharp guy, and, you know, he wasn't interested in just becoming a Christian just because it was what all his friends wanted him to do. You know, he really wanted to uh, see that it was intellectually defensible and all of that. And uh, for about a year, he spent a lot of time hanging out with with Christian people and getting to know them and asking all these questions. And uh, one summer, uh, the summer was ending and I was coming back to campus and I heard Jim, Jim decided that he wants to be a Christian and he prayed to receive Christ this summer. So I asked if he could meet with me and just share his story with me. And we met and he did that. And I remember after he got through sharing the whole thing, he said, but you know, the thing that really made me change my mind and made me take this seriously was that the people that I met through that group were the most loving people that I'd ever met. They were, I felt safe with them, um, and that made me more inclined to take seriously the things they were saying, because I, I just I felt like they, they loved me. He sensed that they wanted to bless him. And, uh, and keep in mind, this is a very smart kid. This is a guy who, for months after he became a Christian, carried around a document that was like 100 pages long that was all information that he himself had compiled defending the resurrection. So he was a very mind-oriented person, but ultimately, even by his own admission, it was the love that was the most powerful tool in drawing him to Christ which is what we would expect, given what 1 Corinthians 13 says, right? Now, after Jim decided to follow Jesus, he started making a conscious effort to encourage other people to follow Jesus. And he did it in a way that showed that he remembered what had been the most important factor in drawing him to Christ. Um, because he was consistently gracious with the people that he talked to. He was consistently kind. I'm sure he made some, some mistakes. He's not a saint. Uh, well, depends on how you define saint, but, you know, he's not an angel. Um, he, he made some mistakes. Um, but from what I observed, his, beha his behavior always consistently demonstrated the attitude, I want to bless you. I want to bless you. And one of the ways that Jim actively tried to encourage people to follow Jesus was that he started participating in a group on campus called the Yukon Freethinkers. And I know I, I've been if you've been around here a lot lately, I've been talking about the Yukon Freethinkers a lot, just because 
I mean, that's one of my big experiences with trying to share my faith, was going to that group. Um, Yukon Freethinkers was a group primarily of atheists and agnostics that would meet just to discuss various issues once a week on campus. And um, there were always a few Christians that would come. And Jim was the first Christian to start going to that group. Jim was actually the student that I was meeting with who invited me to go to that group, and which led to me going there for, for four years. Um, but Jim went, went there faithfully, and you know he cared about doing his homework and trying to present reasonable, rational defenses of his faith and that sort of thing, and, and he, he did that, and I think he did it well. But he did it in a way where it was clear that his main concern was trying to demonstrate love, not trying to win the argument. If he, if he made an attempt to win the argument, you always got the sense it was because he was trying to serve whoever he was talking to, because he was trying to respect whatever questions they had, you know, and it, so it wasn't about winning the argument, it was about serving them. And I remember that after several years of Jim going to this group, um, probably when he was getting close to graduating, there was a week where I was, I was there, but Jim was not. And somehow Jim's name came up, and the president of the group was like, oh, I just love Jim. He's like, Jim is such a great guy. He's such a good guy. I, I don't like his arguments, but man, Jim is such a good guy. Now, I disagreed with her that Jim's arguments weren't great. You know, I, I thought they were very thoughtful and well said. But you know, if after several years of trying to share Christ with the same people, in the same context, the result of that is that someone goes, you know, he's such a great guy. I love that guy. I think that's a win. <laughs> I really do. Because the president of Freethinkers was confident that Jim wanted to bless her. She was confident that he had love. And that is the strongest defense of the faith that Jim possibly could have offered. And that is the strongest defense that we can offer. And without it, we have nothing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the most important thing is for us to truly have love for one another. And God, we ask that you would fill us with the love that you have for us and that it would overflow in our lives to everyone around us, God. We pray that we would embody the kind of love that Jesus Christ displayed on the cross, and we pray that we would do it in the name of Jesus, and that as we do so, more and more people would become your disciples, Lord, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God, we ask for your wisdom and your creativity as we do that, and we pray that in everything that we do, people really would see that we desire to bless them. In Jesus' name, amen.